On April the 21st, 2020, the United Nations projected that because of COVID-19, the number of people that are facing food insecurity, severe food shortage worldwide, could actually double to more than 265 million people. That same week, in the United States, the five-week total of jobless claims rose to a staggering 26 million, pushing millions more people into food insecurity. Hi, I'm Justin Matthews. I am your host for The Social Leader, episode number eight. Today, my guest is Valerie Nicholson-Watson, who is the CEO of Harvesters. Welcome to this episode. We're going to go deep on food insecurity, on innovation, on creativity, and on leadership. Stay tuned. All right. My guest today is Valerie Nicholson Watson. She is the CEO of Harvesters. Valerie joined Harvesters in 2013 and has had various roles, including serving now as the leader of the entire organization for the region. But prior to joining Harvesters, Valerie was a leader in multiple nonprofits, served on multiple boards, most notably was the president and CEO of the Niles Home for Children. Valerie also currently serves as a senior board member for Nonprofit Connect here in Kansas City, I am very pleased today to introduce to you Valerie Nicholson Watson. Hello, Valerie, and welcome to the Social Leader Podcast. Hello, Father Justin. Thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to have you here. And I want to just jump in and ask you, did I miss anything in your bio, anything that you hoped that I would bring out that would let folks know a little bit more about you, Valerie? Well, you, you know, I've been in the nonprofit arena since 1999, and I think that was probably one of the most significant career moves that I ever made, um, because there is nothing better for someone who has to work for a living. There is nothing better than being able to use your gifts and talents uh, to help others. And, and that's what uh, nonprofit allows you to do. And, and I'm just so grateful for it. Well, and we're grateful that you chose to dedicate your time, your talent, your energy to being a, a social leader. And we're going to get today into uh, everything that we can in the time that we've got about food insecurity, particularly here in the Kansas City area and in the region, but generally across the United States. But we also want to learn from you, since you've been leading nonprofits and boards for so long, about how we can learn to lead with greater social impact. And we're going to get to that. But First and foremost, Val, I've got to jump in and just ask you, can you help our listeners understand what is causing food insecurity? We live in a first world nation where it seems like there's food everywhere and plenty for people. But can you help us understand, maybe even tell us a story about why food insecurity exists and, and why is it such a problem in our first world context? You, you know, there is there is so much misinformation, I think, about food insecurity and why people are food insecure. So even before this COVID uh, crisis, Harvesters was serving over 360,000 people throughout our um, 
service area. And wow. these people, for the most part, when you look at their households, they have at least one member in that household who is working. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you also have some households where you have multiple people working, sometimes multiple jobs. But if your income does not provide enough resources for you to live a modest, stable life, something has to give. And when you make those choices between do I pay my rent or mortgage? Do I pay my utilities? Do I buy medicine? Do I purchase food? Food often gets pushed to the side and people go hungry and they don't necessarily know where their next meal will come from. That means they're food insecure. So, you know, sometimes we villainize the poor and we villainize those people who sometimes need some assistance. But these are people just like the rest of us. Either you have the resources or you don't. They happen not to. Yeah, a lot of people, I think when when you talk about hunger in the United States, I'll be honest, a lot of people that I've talked to about poverty, even here in Kansas City, one of the first things that comes to people's mind is, look, people are lazy, they're not working, they, you know, they don't want to work, welfare, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Help us to dispel those notions because you just talked about the socioeconomic realities of what, tens of thousands of people in our region, if not more. Tell me a story that helps me understand and helps our listeners understand a little bit better what you're talking about when it comes to food insecure families and why food insecurity exists. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll I'll share a story that was shared with us from someone who was able to participate in one of our mobile distributions. And this woman shared that it's she and her husband and her husband had not lost his job, but his hours of employment had been cut back drastically. Very common right now. Very common situation. And at the same time, she needed eye surgery and received that eye surgery. So that created some medical bills that they were not anticipating. So when you combine the fact that the income had been reduced significantly with the fact that now they have an unexpected medical bill, you see the strain that that puts on an already strained budget. So, you know, I'm just thankful, very, very thankful that the safety net here um, in our metropolitan area and particularly uh, the 760 whatnot organizations that make up Harvesters, the Community Food Network, many of these organizations provide services in addition uh, to food. I'm just happy that this network is here to provide assistance for people in need. Yeah. And, you know, Reconciliation Services is privileged to be a part of the Harvesters Network. In fact, I was going through our minutes and some old uh, notes, and it looks like actually we were involved in one way or another with Harvesters, even back into the 90s. And uh, certainly now with Thelma's Kitchen, we we would not be serving the hundreds and hundreds of people a day that we serve now if it, if it weren't for Harvesters. And we're 
like I said, we're honored to be a part of your network here in the Kansas City uh, region. I want to talk a little bit about that safety, that social safety net that you mentioned, though, because there there was this act that just was passed on uh, March 18th. I'm not sure that it got enough attention, but the Families First Coronavirus Response Act allowed the USDA and states to have a little bit more funding and flexibility as it implemented SNAP, which if you don't know what SNAP is, that's the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And it's one of those key programs that helps families uh, to afford food when they're food insecure or those families like you're talking about who find themselves unexpectedly without the ability to buy food. And and in this act, uh, Valerie, if I understand, there were kind of four key provisions. Number one, that all eligible households can apply for the SNAP maximum monthly benefit. Secondly, those in-person appointments that people had to have to recertify and to enroll, particularly into WIC, which is Women, Infant, and Children's Program, that that's been waived. And then thirdly, that work and work training requirements, this is a controversial one, but those work requirements for SNAP have been temporarily suspended. And then lastly, of course, this one directly impacts you. This act, the Families First Corona Response Act, actually increased funding to local food banks and to students who are on reduced meals. Now, having gone through all of that, and, and by way of doing that, I'm hoping to educate our, our audience just a little bit about just some of the things that are happening at the federal level. How did you see that act impact you at Harvesters? Was there increased funding? Was there some change in operations? Tell me more about what the local impact of that has been. So um, the federal government has really enacted several different acts, all with the purpose of responding to COVID-19. So one of the most important things that they've done as it relates to uh, food banks and, and hunger relief is the treatment of TFAP, uh, the commodities that food banks across the country distribute in many, many states. Can there, you break down that acronym for me? You said TFAB. Mm-hmm. T- what does that stand for? Temporary Emergency Food Assistance Program. Okay. Just want to make sure that everyone knows what that is. Not everybody knows the, the jargon. So ca- mm-hmm. carry on. So, so I'll take one step back and say for every meal that harvesters and our network can provide, the federal government can provide nine. So they are an important partner in this fight against hunger. And so when we look at programs such as TFAP that provides commodity foods to people across this country, there are some very stringent guidelines to who can receive the food based on income eligibility and which agencies can actually distribute the food based on their own certification. So loosening those guidelines has been tremendous for us because it really allowed us to um, provide food on our mobiles. And this is first quality food. It, um, and then later on, uh, they initiated the disaster household distribution program. And that allows us to provide of food to people without certifying their income. So they simply have to make an attestation that they don't meet or they don't exceed the income guidelines. So that opened up 
uh, hundreds of thousands of pounds of food to augment the food that we were able to distribute. Very important at this point in time, when we see our uh, chef stable food donations just really plummeting. Val, can you hear me right now? I can hear you. Okay, we've got a. So I I, I can keep sharing. Yeah, uh, please do. Thanks. So when so when we we talk about SNAP as well, so Harvesters does outreach for SNAP in Kansas and Missouri. We actually have a hotline that people can call. They can uh, get more information about SNAP to preliminarily see if uh, they would be eligible. And I will say that uh, during this pandemic, calls to our hotline have increased significantly. Many of the people who are calling do not meet the guidelines. So they, uh, you know, have opted, of course, not to submit applications. But uh, when we talk about SNAP and through uh, Families First, trying to raise the minimum amount um, of assistance that people receive with it. And then the pandemic SNAP, trying to actually increase uh, the, um, the ceiling for what people are eligible for. It makes so much difference. And it makes the difference in the lives of the families who receive SNAP. They are able to actually go to the grocery store and shop for the specific foods that they need. But we often overlook the economic impact that SNAP has on the community because those dollars are being spent at the grocery stores. So uh, it actually helps or, or contributes to the strength of our economy. If you lower SNAP, uh, then that's less money in this economy, you know? So grocers are able to hire people and people are able to have jobs in the uh, food industry because those SNAP dollars are there. Yeah, you know, when you talk about families um, and, and the need and the SNAP dollars, I wanna focus in on one particular survey. Uh, there was a survey recently of mothers and young children, and it said that 17.4% of mothers with children ages 12 and under reported at the start of the pandemic, not even uh, since it's happened, that there were children in their household who weren't eating enough because they just couldn't afford food. I mean, so obviously, Val, with what you're saying, food insecurity has, I'm sure, deteriorated even more in households with children. Are you able to confirm that? Are we seeing the same thing here in the Kansas City region as well? We clearly are. So our member agencies are reporting between 80% on average increase in the number of people that they are serving. So that's significant. Um, and what they're sharing with us is that many of the people they are seeing have never had to access uh, emergency food assistance. So these are people who typically had enough revenue so that they didn't need assistance, but likely have lost their job or seen their employment hours reduced as a result of uh, this health crisis. And so now they're in a position where they're making tough choices. 
And again, I'm, I'm just grateful that one of the tough choices they may not have to make is do I skip the meals so that I can feed my children? You know, one of the things that I think we've all um, been impacted by is when you go to the grocery store, even if you're not like one of those families that, you know, can't afford the meal, you go to the grocery store and it's not just toilet paper that you can't find. There's all sorts of things. Um, I, I just recently was at uh, the grocery store with my family, with my wife, and noticed that the the whole meat counter was virtually empty. And of course, that goes back to food insecurity as well as um, to food safety issues, rather, in the meat production plants uh, that we've been hearing about in the news. But in in a you know in the work that you're doing, you re you rely on a huge national supply chain, if I'm not mistaken. Have you have you seen farmers or that supply chain um, undermined because of the COVID-19 situation? Uh, from what I've read, Valerie, there are farmers of all sizes across the United States that are even having to dump their crops or destroy their harvests um, because there isn't enough, you know, there aren't enough people to buy it. Uh, you know, is there a disruption in the food chain that you're experiencing? And then even more than that, why are farmers, you know, dumping crops or destroying crops when they, when they could be giving it to organizations like yours? Illumine that food chain access issue for us a little bit. Okay. So there is absolutely a disruption in the food chain. Mm. And I know this in terms of how it is impacting this organization and our sister food banks across the country. Um, one of the, I, I think the first changes that we noticed was that rush for retail. You know, mm. everybody was buying, 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 and that really put a strain on our food retailers. And we saw that some products were being sold faster than they could be manufactured. And what we saw at Feeding America or through Feeding America during this time is that the portals that we are able to purchase food through, we saw that many of our choices were disappearing. And I think it, it went from something like 920 odd choices down to 700 because those products that were not in high demand were being uh, put to the side and those that were in high demand were, were more readily available. But right now what we're seeing is that the disruption has in particular created issues even for us as our donated food has disappeared, particularly shelf-stable food, I should say. And so we're being forced to purchase food. And when we purchase food, you first have to find it. And, mm -hmm. and that's not always as easy as, as someone might think it is. And then we are getting delivery dates that are four to eight weeks out from time of purchase. And in some instances, and this was more so uh, early on in, in the crisis, you'd place an order and then the next thing you know, they canceled that order saying they can't get the food. Uh, in terms of meat, and, and I'm not an expert, I just know what I read, uh, but in, in terms of meat, particularly with so many of the packing or processing plants being shut down, then you have that backlog 
from the farmers. And mm-hmm. if they don't have somewhere to process that meat, then what do they do with it? And they have their supply chain in terms of the livestock that's coming in. And so even when you hear about farmers, you know, perhaps having to euthanize chickens or pigs or something, they can't give it to us if we can't get it processed. Yeah, there's a very complex food distribution system is what you're is what you're talking about. But, you know, when I look at the work that you're doing at Harvesters, uh, one of the news reports that I read said said that on March 23rd, Harvesters saw its single largest daily order ever in its 40 year history. And then I saw in the news just a couple of days ago that. Um, Harvesters this week distributed with its volunteers the largest single distribution you've ever done. Over a hundred thousand pounds of food, nearly eight thousand people, or or sixteen hundred households. I mean, you're moving a ton of food into the market, and yet it doesn't feel like we make a dent. And and I, I'd, I'd love to have you help us to understand what are we going to do about the systemic issues, not just the the farmers who don't have anywhere to take things because of COVID, but you know, it feels like we give out food all of the time. You know, there's free meals, there's great programs like Harvesters, but what are we going to do to be able to get to the place where people have enough food and are able to access that? What innovations or what changes do we need to bring about? Um, and has anything new come about in your leadership as a result of the COVID situation? Something you've learned? Well, you know, Harvester's mission is to feed hungry people today and to work to end hunger tomorrow. Mm. And so um, one of the things that we rely on is just the data that we get back from our agencies and the people that they serve. And so we know that the people who are food insecure on a regular basis they typically have some of those underlying medical issues that sometimes put their ability to work in jeopardy. And you think about things like hypertension, diabetes, um, high blood pressure, those kinds of things that to maintain um, good health, people really need a good diet. And so one of the things that we've started to do is to work with healthcare providers to help them help their patients integrate good nutrition into their health maintenance. Yeah, I love that saying that food is medicine. And in fact, at Thelma's Kitchen here, supported by Harvesters, we've actually been experimenting on a small level with Truman Medical. Um, uh, what would it look like if we actually had doctors prescribing healthy food? Have you have you guys ever worked with any medical institutions to try to, to get in deep on the prescription side rather than on the reactive side? So, so that is absolutely what we are doing. And mm-hmm. we have partnerships um, across our service area right now. And we've probably been doing this. We're going into our fourth year. And the response from healthcare providers have been tremendous. Uh, it's interesting, though, that everyone's or, or there are so many different responses. You know, they are from as simple as sharing a card with uh, patients that shows them how to access our pantry finder to actually 
the um, medical providers purchasing food that we then package in prescriptive boxes so that they have it available for for their patients. Uh, and even um, different organizations sponsoring uh, kids' cafes and that sort of thing so that when children come in for their pediatric uh, health checks, uh, not only can the patient eat, but um, if there are siblings, the siblings can eat as well. But uh, you know what? I, I talked a little bit about um, Harvesters, the community network, and the organizations that make up the network. Mm-hmm. You know, Harvesters is a food bank. And we have very pointedly stayed in that lane. We provide the food and we provide food and nutrition education in a lot of different ways. But there are member agencies in this network who do things such as job training Mm -hmm. and educational assistance, um, housing and utility assistance, those, those other kinds of supports that people need to help them stabilize their lives. You know, I, um, you know, social justice is, is something that this country has been seeking for a very long time, as is economic justice. I don't know that I have the answers, but I think we all know what it takes, what a family has to have in order, again, uh, you know, I'm not asking for the lifestyles of the rich and famous, just a stable, modest lifestyle. Well, and and what you're talking about is that that, uh, basic understanding of the social determinants of health, that if if we want to address hunger, we actually have to address healthcare, we have to address education, we have to address the neighborhood and the built environment, we have to address the ability to eat and education. And Valerie, one of the things I was thinking about this morning and preparing to talk to you was the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic, it's actually hit all five of those. You know, you've got the educational system completely shut down and now stripped down into this homeschool methodology. You've got neighborhoods that already had environmental issues or access to healthy food issues. Now, you know, those social safety nets that keep neighborhoods afloat and the ability to get together and to to build those interactions that break down isolation those things have been disrupted. You know, you could go down that list and, and food access and food insecurity is really just one of them. But what you're saying is that the number of food insecure people will uh, continue to grow. It sounds like until we actually address the issue holistically. And so what would be the role for a food bank if you're staying in your lane, like you said, what is your role if it's catalytic or if it's from a policy perspective to try to address those other domains of the social determinants of health? You know, one of the things that we do and, and will continue to do is to partner with those organizations that are providing those types of services that help people regain or gain their um economic independence, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Um, And so that's one of the things that we can do. Our um, partnerships with healthcare providers, that's clearly something else we can do. Because when you don't have your health, it's very difficult for you to maintain a job, uh, for you to uh, really prosper and grow 
into a job or even even to do well at in school. So food plays a vital role, you know, and, and we can't downplay that because anything that any, you know, people typically know what they need. Let, mm-hmm. let me back up just a little bit. People typically know what they need. And I think we are often ready to prescribe what we think they need. And so one of the things that we can do is to just listen uh, to them and ask them what they need in terms of what will it take for you to create stability in, in, in your life. So that's one of the things that we can do. But when we think about food, you know, you feed a person today, but that's one meal. They need three meals a day, every day. So that is why we, you, you know, we often find ourselves saying, well, well, you know, we, we provide so much food, but um, it, it seems like a never ending effort. And to right. some degree, it is a never ending effort as long as humans have to eat. Um, you know, the, the, the gap in, in the number of meals that people miss, even, even before. COVID, um, our national network was providing food to over 37 million people. And when you hear numbers like that, it's difficult to sort of quantify what that means. I mean, just just the other day, Valerie, I was here at Reconciliation Services, and one of uh, our case managers told me a story about a mother and a father who had two or three kids, I can't remember which, but they were trying to feed their kids three day, you know, three times a day, seven days a week. But in order to do that, you know, they actually were skipping and eating one meal every other day. And so when you, when you think about those staggering, you know, multi, multi-million dollar, uh, multi-million person uh, numbers that you're throwing out, it's hard to sort of personalize those and get them drilled down at the personal level with individual families. You know, I'm thinking about the number of leaders who are listening to this podcast either now while we're broadcasting or later and who want to do something. Um, so first of all, how can people engage with harvesters in the region? What can they do to help solve the food insecurity problem? You know, right now, I, I think for something like food, you certainly have to address the immediate needs of people. Because if, if they don't have food, uh, then it's very difficult to, to think beyond just meeting that very basic need. So in normal times, I would say give voice. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about the uh, federal nutrition programs. We need to make sure that those programs are robust enough to assist people in need uh, and that we don't make changes that cause harm to the people who uh, rely on them. We asked uh, our community to give time, particularly through either volunteering here at Harvesters or volunteering at one of the hundreds of uh, organizations and, and even other nonprofits in this city. Uh, we asked to give them to give food because at you know that's the core of our business, and we asked for them to give money because you you know we have to keep the lights on and get the food to where it's needed most. Right, right now, right now, our volunteer capacity is diminished just because we are following mandates in in terms of uh, the size of gatherings. But you know this won't last always. 
So is that going to change as the, as the city reopens again, this 10, 10, 10 rule in Kansas city? Um, do you, do you have a plan for when more people will be able to come back and keep them safe as they're volunteering? Absolutely. You, you know, for the time being, uh, clearly we are, um, getting, getting our guidance, excuse me, our guidance from, uh, the city, the state, uh, and our local health departments. And so we will always meet or exceed their recommendations. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we are able to resume normal operations, and, you know, that will be at a point in time where we believe based on uh, the information that we have and, and the, uh, the guidance that the professionals are giving us, um, to bring folks back in so that they can work in a safe environment. So even though you don't yet have a date for folks to be able to come back and volunteer, um, they can run, you know, I guess, food drives in, in, at home in their neighborhood and, and bring that food down. And you're saying that they can donate. And I, I want to make sure that everybody's able to support you. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can go to harvesters.org. I just put that website up there. You can donate. You can sign up to volunteer for when they do open again. And you can also get involved and get educated. And I, I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed about this conversation is that you've helped to get a little bit more educated, help me to get a little bit more educated about the kind of systemic issues in the food insecurity um, under underlying issues that drive food insecurity. And that you, you've also helped me understand a little bit more about the immediate need. Um, I always end every podcast, Valerie, with this question. There are a lot of leaders who are listening, who are wanting to learn to lead with greater social impact wherever they are. Um, what do those who are listening need to do? They might not all be able to join nonprofits. They might not all be able to do what you talked about early on. Um, but what can they do and how can leaders increase their social impact to help solve the food insecurity crisis in Kansas City and in the United States? You know, we, we talked a little bit about it. You know, first and foremost, I think, is just being aware of the issue and some of those underlying causes and then determining what area you, you know, of, of this whole aspect of food insecurity, you would like to to be involved in. Uh, you know, not you, you won't conquer, you know, all of the ills or issues in one day. But if you focus in one area, then clearly you can make a difference. But also, you know, just listening to the people that you want to provide assistance to. If you listen and try to meet their needs versus trying to meet your own goals and objectives, then I, I, I think your head and shoulders uh, above the rest. It's all about the people we serve. And if we keep them front and center, uh, we will make the decisions and take the actions that are necessary to make a difference in their lives. Valerie, I really appreciate you as we as we end our time together, helping all of us to remember that we've got to keep a focus as leaders. And our focus isn't just on the ROI of our company, right? But the focus can also be at the same time, what social impact do I want to have as a leader? And getting that focus, getting educated. And then what you said is critically important, that idea of listening first, not rushing in to serve. That's actually 
how things get turned upside down when we waste money, waste time, waste effort trying to give a community what we think they need rather than actually embracing the humility and the vulnerability and taking the time to go and to listen to the community first and ask, what is it that you really need and how can I help? And I love that you brought out those two things because I think they are key aspects of what leaders need to do in order to become social leaders. So Valerie, I really appreciate the time that you've given us today on the Social Leader Podcast. Is there any last word or any final thought that you want to leave us with as we wrap up our time together? You know, just a couple things. You know, I, I do want to commend um, the people throughout our metropolitan area because we have some very, very generous people hmm. who do what they can. And that's the thing ab about um, nonprofits and the work that we do. Nothing is too much and nothing is too little when it's on the part of an individual. But then I'll also say how much, uh, Father Justin, that I appreciate you and the work that you do and the innovative thinking that you bring to the work and the way in which you're able to bring so many different people of our community together, you know, right on 31st and Truce, that really the heart of our city, mm -hmm. if, if you think about it. And, and so I, I just admire the work that you do. I am inspired and you give me some great ideas. Well, thank you for the compliments. And to be honest with you, it isn't me. It's the team that we have at Reconciliation Services. And it's not just us, Valerie. I mean it. We could not do Thomas Kitchen or what we do without harvesters and just like you, without hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. And I want to encourage everybody one more time, go to harvesters.org. Check out the work that Valerie is doing. Check out the work of harvesters. If your heart is burdened with the food insecurity in our region and across our country, now's the time. If you've ever wanted to increase your social impact as a leader, this is a great way to begin. Go to harvesters.org, give as generously as you can, and by that, get active, get involved as a social leader. Valerie, thanks again for being my guest on the Social Leader Podcast today. Thank you. It, it it was painless. <laughs> no, it wasn't too bad. It was. We had a couple of tech glitches along the way, but you covered it just perfectly. You did great. Oh, I don't think anybody noticed. Thanks. Well, friends, I want to wrap up our time just by reminding you that The Social Leader is presented by Reconciliation Services and sponsored by Thelma's Kitchen. If you want to get involved at Thelma's Kitchen right here at 31st and Troost, you can make a dent in the food insecurity in Kansas City. We are open five days a week, Monday through Friday from 11 o'clock to 2 o'clock. Now, normally, Thelma's Kitchen is a restaurant, and we bring everybody together to eat a five-star Yelp-rated meal for lunch on Troost Avenue. But right now, because of the pandemic, of course, we're closed. We're social distancing. We are looking forward to being able to open again. But right now, we still need your help. Since the beginning of January, Thelma's Kitchen has had a 347% 
increase in the number of meals served right out of our front door. If you go to harvesters.org, you will see Reconciliation Services and Thelma's Kitchen as, as a key part of their community network. And if you want to get involved with Thelma's Kitchen in particular, go to thelmaskitchen.org. Find out how you can volunteer, sponsor a meal. We really appreciate your help. Hey, as we wrap up the social leader, I want to again bring back that challenge that Valerie gave us to take the time to learn, to take the time to, to find a focus, to let our hearts break with the things that break God's heart, to become more vulnerable, and then to begin to listen before we rush in, to begin as leaders to really listen deeply to the community and figure out how no matter what you do, no matter whether you're a foreman on a construction company or the CEO of a huge company or a stay-at-home parent, how you can become a social leader in this region. If you'd like to find out more about how to become a social leader and what the key fundamentals of a social leader are, I want to ask you to go to thesocialleader.org, thesocialleader.org. It's a brand new e-course that Reconciliation Services is getting ready to launch in the next couple of weeks. It's going to give you the three essential skills that you're going to need to begin the process of becoming a social leader, deepening your impact, and growing your leadership influence in the community to solve the social problems that you care the most about. So go to thesocialleader.org. Once again, thank you for joining us today on the Social Leader Podcast. I look forward to seeing you next time.